0: You can take your Bibles out. We are in the middle of a series uh, that we're calling the Beatitudes, which is covering the beginning of Jesus' most famous set of teachings, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes cover Matthew 5, 1 through 12. There's eight of them. Today, we're looking at the third one. So um, I'm going to read the scripture for us. Let me invite you to stand as God's word is read. Jesus was a masterful teacher, and we're going to hear his teaching, and he has sent us his spirit to give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe. So let's hear the scripture with faith. Matthew 5, beginning in verse one. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, come this morning through the ministry of your Holy Spirit and help our hearts to believe the good news of the gospel. We cry out together with um, that man in the scriptures who says, I believe, help my unbelief. And so, Jesus, this morning, will you help our unbelief? Some of us this week have had just difficulty with doubt. Some of us this week have been overwhelmed with all manner of negative emotions. Some of us this week have experienced the hardship that comes in uh, close human relationships God, we come from all kinds of places this morning, emotionally and spiritually and psychologically, and so we ask that you would remind us together this morning of what is true of every single one of us, that we're all made in your image, we're all loved by you, and yet we're all also deeply and desperately broken and wounded by our own sin and by the sin of others. And so help us as sinners to look to Jesus Christ in his life and death and burial and resurrection in faith, trusting and believing that the promises he makes to us really are true, and they really do transform and change us. Jesus, we can't do that by ourselves, so we ask for your spirit to do it among us, even this morning. We pray these things together this morning in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's our text this morning. Uh, When I read that verse, I'm always reminded of uh, Cormac McCarthy's novel, All the Pretty Horses. I know those of you who know Cormac McCarthy, you either love him or you hate him. There's no middle ground with Cormac McCarthy, but I enjoy his writings. And this is one of his more accessible books. It was made into a film some years ago. I think Matt Damon is the star. Uh, It's about a young Texan named John Grady who travels to Mexico. And while he's in Mexico, he falls in love with a beautiful young girl there, and Grady's uh, job is horse training. He's a a gifted horse trainer, and he's able to relate to horses in a way that is quite rare. Uh, But the brilliance of the novel, in my opinion, is that while uh, John Grady's character understands in his vocational life the importance of a tame horse, the importance of what you might call a meek horse— he can't accept or live with meekness in his own life. His life is completely untamed. It's, it's wild. And he spends his days training horses, but is unable to train himself. And, and as the story progresses, at one point towards the climax of uh, the plot, Grady says this, the good book says that the meek shall inherit the earth. And I expect that's probably the truth. But I'm a long way from being convinced that that's going to be a good thing. The meek shall inherit the earth, Jesus says. Do you think that that's a good thing? Do you believe that meekness is a virtue? That meekness is something you should pursue in your own lives? Are you meek? We're continuing this study of the Beatitudes, which open Jesus's sermon on the mount. And as we talked about the last couple of weeks, based on their placement in Matthew's gospel alone, they occupy a place of central importance, and so they deserve our attention. And by way of background, we've seen in the first two Beatitudes that Jesus is not intending in giving us these pithy statements to erect some sort of new standard of legalism for his kingdom people. The Beatitudes are not, do this and you will live. They are not, be this way, then God will love you. Rather, Jesus is doing something else in the Beatitudes. In a way, uh, I think I put it this way last week, the Beatitudes are are case studies of those upon whom the kingdom of God, the reign of Jesus' grace and love has dawned. And this is especially true with the first four Beatitudes, which are Beatitudes of need. The kingdom we see in these Beatitudes is for the poor, It's for the sad, it's for the trampled upon and the forgotten. But as we progress through the Beatitudes, we begin to see something else. The Beatitudes build on one another. They are, on the one hand, case studies for the type of person that Jesus came for, but on the other hand, they're also qualities and characteristics that kingdom people manifest as a result of Jesus' grace to them. We don't act this way in order to receive Jesus' grace, but when we have received his grace, when we've by his love been brought into his kingdom, these are a pathway for our new lives, for our new identities. And so it is fair to say that we all, if we're followers of Jesus, should pursue meekness. We should hunger and thirst for righteousness, as he tells us in the next beatitude. We should be merciful and on and on. That's not legalism. It's merely a way for Jesus to lay out for his people who have already been saved by his grace what it looks like to be in his kingdom. So Jesus is showing us in the beatitudes that he gives grace to those we would least expect His kingdom is surprising and counterintuitive in that way. He turns our expectations upside down, doesn't he? And Jesus is showing us the way of Jesus that his people should follow. So with that background, let's look this morning at the idea of meekness. The meek are blessed and they will inherit the earth. I want to show you three things, okay? First, the meaning of meekness. Secondly, the reward of meekness. And then thirdly, the way to meekness. For you note takers, there's your outline. Let's go. Ready? Okay, first, the meaning of meekness. You can make a good case that meekness is the most misunderstood of all of Jesus' beatitudes. And here's why. Most of us, I would be willing to bet, when we hear the word meekness, we think, at least in part, Weakness. We think the meek are the weak. Some of us might even think of meekness as spinelessness. And and I think that that, friends, is a bad assumption. The word Jesus uses here in the original language in which the New Testament is written, Greek, is very rare, and the word simply means to be gentle, uh, to be humble, to be unassuming, And in the Greek language, this word is regularly used, was regularly used thousands of years ago when Greek was the lingua franca, much like English is today, by three groups of people. First, this word meekness was used by physicians when they would describe soothing medicine that would take away pain. They would call that medicine meek. Secondly, the word was used by sailors. And when sailors would use this word, they would often be describing a, a cool breeze that came upon them when they were on the Mediterranean Sea that would bring freshness to the sailors. And, and a third group of people, most relevant, I think, for our purposes, was horse trainers and horsemen. They, they would refer to tamed horses, as I mentioned at the outset, as meek. I think that final analogy helps us the most. Think about this with me. What is the difference between a wild horse and the tamed horse? The difference is not that a a wild horse is powerful and a tamed horse is powerless, right? The difference, rather, is that a wild horse's power is uncontrolled, whereas a tame horse uses his or her power in a measured, purposeful way. So, when Jesus uses the word meek, we are not to think of weak, spineless, cowardly people. Very, very powerful, very, very strong people can also be meek. He's referring to a quality of measuredness, of self control, of gentleness. And even those who might be quite important or significant are able to patiently harness their power if they are meek. So meekness is not a synonym for weakness. After all, Jesus himself is the meekest person who's ever lived, and none of us would describe him as powerless. Meekness, rather, is more akin to patience, to gentleness. And specifically, meekness is patience and gentleness in the face of loss. Patience An unassuming humility in, in the face of threat. This might be the only beatitude in which we know almost certainly that Jesus is quoting from the Old Testament. He's in fact quoting from one of the Psalms. Psalm 37 verse 11 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. And Psalm 37, you don't have to turn there, but you can if you wish, is really an extended reflection on meekness Let me just read a few snippets of Psalm 37 for you. Here's how verse 1 begins the psalm. Fret not yourself. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust Yahweh and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. As you can tell then, hopefully, this is a psalm encouraging God's people towards meekness when it seems that evil is prevailing all around them. When it seems that a life of faith that they're attempting to live is not any longer worthwhile. Meekness is the poise that faith brings. It's the poise of faith. I think a wonderful illustration of meekness that we find in the scriptures is in Abraham. There are probably multiple illustrations in his life where we see that he acts with meekness, but one that I think about is his... uh, his decision with Lot, his nephew, in, in Genesis chapter 13. Lot has followed Abraham along with all of their possessions as God has called them out of Ur, their home city, into a place they don't know. And they get to the Promised Land, and there's not enough, not enough room in this town for the both of them, right? And so Abraham tells Lot, "You can take whichever land that you wish to take." And Lot chooses to take the more pleasant land. Uh, You'll find out later, not a great choice. It's the land of Sodom. So things don't go so well for Lot in just a couple of chapters. And Abraham takes the less pleasant land, the land of Canaan. This is a very meek, gentle, humble move by Abraham because Abraham is wealthier. He's the authority figure. The power dynamics in their relationship are not symmetrical. But he shows meekness in giving Lot the first choice of real estate. He doesn't enforce his power. He doesn't enforce his position. Rather, he he humbles himself. He shows a poise, a poise of faith, a calm resolve, a trust in God in the face of a tense and anxiety-building situation. That's what meekness is, friends. Meekness is the poise of faith. Secondly, let me show you the reward. The reward of meekness. Jesus tells us back in Matthew 5 that the meek will inherit the earth. That's the reward. And again, this harkens back to Psalm 37. I just read that section to you, and it would have made a lot of sense to Jesus's original audience. These poor Uh, grief-stricken people and disciples who were listening to him speak. And and they almost certainly would have seen this claim as something that is very bold and and very audacious. Because in first century Palestine, 99% of the land was owned by 1% of the people. You want to talk about income and wealth inequality, that culture had it much more greatly than our culture has it. And Psalm 37 was written to people who had been mistreated and and abused by the wicked, by wealthy landowners who had cheated their workers. And the psalm tells us to trust in God. Trust in God when we're being mistreated by the strong, by those who are using their power in an unbridled and unrestrained and impatient way. Why? Why should we trust God in that situation? The psalm tells us because God will crush the wicked. Psalm 37, 20, the enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures, they vanish, like smoke, they vanish away, and the blessed of the Lord will inherit the land. So, so those who are being mistreated, those who, those who have been hurt and abused, those who have been trampled upon, Jesus is saying, the kingdom is for you. Yours is the reward you will inherit the earth. And they're thinking, I have nothing to my name right now, and you, Jesus, are telling me that one day all things are going to be mine? Yes. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Of course, part of what Jesus means as he moves us forward redemptively from Psalm 37 is that our reward is future. We will actually, if we are connected to Jesus Christ in faith, one day possess the owners of this universe through our union with Jesus Christ, the King. Now in our lives, I mean, think about it in your life, the examples you could tell, the news headlines you read, where it seems as if the wicked triumph and the evil prevail. Jesus is saying that is not going to last. What we see in the Ukraine is not going to last. What we see in Sri Lanka right now is not going to last. What we see sometimes in our own city and neighborhoods is not going to last. One day, this world will be made right again, and we will, along with Christ, be rulers of it. That's why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, all things are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. That's the counterintuitive nature of his kingdom. He tells us that those who now have no power, no wealth, no control in the kingdoms of this world will one day inherit not just a piece of real estate in Palestine, but the entire new creation. So the promise is certainly future. Yet as we saw last week with blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted, this promise is also present you can experience, you can experience the blessing and the promise that Jesus makes to the meek right now in your life because his kingdom has come. How can you experience that? In what sense can the meek experience their inheritance in the here and now? I think among other things Jesus is saying here, again in a topsy-turvy counterintuitive way, that it is the meek ones who are really the wealthy ones. And it is the meek ones who are actually free. The original audience, and probably all of us, to some degree or another, tend to think that it's only those who are on top of the economic food chain who have the most power who are free in this life. But Jesus says, no. True freedom... And true wealth is really found in my kingdom of meekness. Think about it. One who has the poise of faith, one who can live gently and and patiently in the face of adversity and in the face of injustice, the meek one is free. He's free from anxiety She's free from the frenetic pace of a life based only on acquisition and consumption. He's free from the need to prove himself. She's free from the need to prove herself. We're free from vengeance and vindication when we are wronged. We're free from worshiping money and power and the many other gods of this culture who will one day be taken down. We're free to use whatever power and authority we have in a way that is measured and directed towards human flourishing and not just towards self-satisfaction. King David, he's another example, along with Abraham, of using power well and and being meek. There's a story about David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 16. He's in the middle of a war with his rebel son named Absalom. And David has fled Jerusalem. And when he enters one town, there's this guy named Shemai who begins to curse at David and pick up stones and throw stones at David as David rides through the town. And he yells at David. He calls him worthless and he mocks him and he derides him. And so David's guys, you know, his generals and his lieutenants are watching this happen. And one of David's main generals, a man named Abishai, he comes up to David and he's like, listen, here's what we need to do. One arrow. One arrow's all it's going to take. I'll take Shammai out. No problemo. Let me go take this guy's head off for you, King David. He's disrespecting you. We can't have our king disrespected like that, especially with what's going on here. We've got a civil war on our hands. But David responds by simply saying, no, we're going to wait on the Lord. We're going to let the Lord have vengeance on him for cursing me, if that is the Lord's will. You see what David does there? He's able. He's able to act calmly and not rashly in the face of cursing. He's able to take insults and persecution and and move on in faith. That's meekness, it's the poise of faith. And I think Jesus is saying that is its own reward, not having to avenge oneself, not having to prove oneself, because you're patiently, meekly waiting on God to do what he's promised for you. I think we have to ask, is this us? Is this evident in our lives at all, if we claim to be followers of Jesus? Is meekness Gently and patiently waiting on God, something that characterizes our lives. Meekness doesn't get us into the kingdom. This is not a new legalism, but meekness is a mark of kingdom people. It's a mark of kingdom people. So it's fair to ask, is meekness evident in your life? If you're a person here this morning that has some measure of authority, if you're a person that has power, maybe you run your own business. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you parent children. Maybe you have a leadership role in some organization. A question to ask is, do you use your power in a way that is meek? Is it channeled for the good of your employees, for the good of the company, for the good of the organization, for the good of your children, for the good of the city? Maybe you're someone who's suffered much, someone who has been unjustly hurt, Is meekness a part of your response? Or are you vengeful and vindictive? Are you bitter? Fret not because of evildoers, we are told. One day you will inherit the earth. Is the poise of faith, is it evident in your life? And if it's not, how? How can we grow in this area? How can we live into meekness? How can we be citizens of the kingdom? What's the way? Let me show you that lastly. The way. The way to meekness. Friends, to understand the way to meekness, uh, we have to grasp that, that in a sense, all of the Beatitudes are, first of all, descriptions of who Jesus is. Jesus is the model kingdom citizen. The king of the kingdom characterizes the way of the kingdom. The counterintuitive kingdom of God is governed by a counterintuitive king. Just think with me. If you know the story of Jesus at all, you likely know this story. Think about the manner in which, on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem. Talk about patiently harnessing your power. He comes into the city, the king of the universe, riding on kids. What is Jesus riding on? A donkey. He's riding on a donkey, not a war horse. And later in Matthew, when Matthew describes the triumphal entry, he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who says this, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble, gently, meekly, mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Jesus rode into the city on a beast of burden to be our beast of burden. Jesus is the ultimate meek one. So what? How does Jesus' meekness help us to be meek? Allow me, as we wrap up, allow me to draw one other connection with you between this beatitude in another section in Matthew's gospel. Earlier on, I mentioned that meekness is a rare word. It's used actually only twice by Matthew. One is here in Matthew 5.5, 5, and the other one is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Let me read that for you. Here, Jesus is speaking, and he says, "'Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, "'and I will give you rest. "'Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, For I am gentle and meek. I am gentle and meek in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Jesus almost never gives self-descriptions of himself. But this is one, one of the few places in which he does so. He calls himself here gentle and meek. And what he tells us is that our response to hearing that Jesus himself is meek should be to come to him. To come to him with your burdens. To come to him with your labor. To come to him with all of the things that you have to carry in your lives. And Jesus promises out of his gentleness, out of his meekness to give us, when we come to him, rest. I love how Dane Orton in his uh, recent book, Gentle and Lowly, puts it. He says this, quote, the minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It is all he needs. Indeed, it is the only thing he works with. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment is required. He says, I will give, give as a gift you rest. So what's the way forward? How do we respond? If you feel beaten down and broken, like those... To whom Psalm 37 was written, and like many of those to whom Jesus was speaking when he first taught these Beatitudes, come, come to the meek and gentle Jesus and find rest. If you haven't been meek in your life, but you've tried to gain power or authority, by impatiently grasping at what this world offers, Jesus says, lay down the burden of trying to attain what you think is going to make you happy, but never really will, and come to Jesus. His meekness opens for you a new way of life entirely. If you doubt that this promise is indeed true, If you have a hard time this morning believing that all will be yours and that this life is only the opening chapter in a much greater story, if your struggles seem to imply to you otherwise, Jesus to you right now says, come to me, just accept my invitation. See if I will make good on my promise to you. The way to meekness is to rest in the meekness of Jesus. Jesus humbled himself meekly to the point of death for you. Jesus harnessed his power by bearing all our sin and shame and by overcoming the sting of death in his resurrection. He's here for you now, right now, no matter what's happening in your story by his spirit, come to him. All who are weary, all who are heavy laden, all who are burdened, and he will give you rest. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you sent Jesus in humility when you could have sent him as merely an instrument of your judgment upon us, justly and rightly because of our rebellion against you. Out of your great love for us, what you have done is sent to us a humble and lowly and meek servant Jesus who... For the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame and was willing to empty himself of all of the prerogatives and rights of divinity so that he could come near to us as Emmanuel, dwell among us, Live a meek and gentle and lowly life, and then suffer a cruel death that we might be pardoned of all of our trespasses against you. And thank you, Jesus, that through your resurrection and through the outpouring of your Holy Spirit, you now, by grace, help us to be people of meekness, to be people who are able, in the face of threat, in the face of loss, more and more as you grow us up in the gospel, to be patient to be gentle, to be unassuming. And so we ask God that you would do that among us now, that we might be a people that more and more reflect the nature of your kingdom. Do this by your grace. Where we failed, God, bring us to confession and repentance and help us more and more to grow in meekness as we come to our Savior, casting our burdens upon him because he cares for us. Will you do that for us even now, we ask, in the name of Christ, Amen.